Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast and I'm your host George Grimwood. In late September of last year, in 2013, I travelled from London to Los Angeles. Aside from a desire to return, since I was there a few years previously with family, I had also been inspired by the 2003 documentary Los Angeles Plays Itself, in which hundreds of scenes from hundreds of films play out, with the vast and sprawling setting a character in itself, the city of Los Angeles. Narrated by Enk King and written and directed by film critic and teacher Tom Anderson, it left me with a distinct impression that I was missing out on this story, and I wanted to be a part of it, even fleetingly. Incidentally, you should hunt down Los Angeles Plays Itself. It's all on YouTube. I think it's quite hard to come by on any film screen, as the amount of clips used makes it subject to several different kinds of copyright. But yes, Los Angeles Plays Itself from 2003. Strongly recommended. Anyway, I was accompanied by my friend, freelance editor and film and television historian Jonathan Sloman. With only the use of our legs, occasional public transport, and chance encounters with strangers who happen to drive, we got a surprising amount done in two weeks. We toured, and subsequently sneaked around, film studios, attended a VIP recording of the now-cancelled sitcom Dads, and met Martin Mull on the set, mingled amidst acting and comedy royalty such as Kirk Douglas, Sidney Poitier, Lily Tomlin, and Tim Conway, at an event devoted to the work of producer and director George Schlatter, also there, dined at a charity dog show event amidst the likes of Fred Willard and Leonard Moulton, took an extensive trip around town with a dearly departed tour. I bought a red tie for $10, previously worn by Michael C. Hall for a promotional shoot for season three of the television series Dexter, and across the road from there I bought an original Pee Wee Herman doll, still in its box. I ended up on an impromptu scavenger hunt on the day in which the final episode of the series Breaking Bad aired, when the actor Aaron Paul announced on Twitter that he was hiding tickets for the finale event being held at Hollywood Forever Cemetery that evening in and around locations around Sunset Boulevard and beyond. We attended events at venues such as the Largo at the Coronet, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre and the Nerd Melt Showroom at Meltdown Comics. We met an array of comedians and podcast hosts at the podcast festival in Santa Monica, three days of being welcomed into and surrounded by a community of good listeners and good talkers. We tasted true Hollywood dining at Musso and Frank's, ate the famous garlic bread at the Smokehouse, the hash browns at Big Boy's, deviled eggs in Pasadena, drank beer at the Frolic, and ate the hottest chicken wings we've ever had at Bordner's one midnight. We got a lot done. Unwanted memory loss aside, I've purposely omitted the relevance of our trip to Los Angeles in relation to the talk show talk show. And in that respect, I am referring to a Letterman rarity, a Leno recording, and a Ferguson Q. In this and the next episode, Jonathan and I will be discussing our experiences with talk show culture while we ventured through Los Angeles. This conversation was recorded in person in my lounge, and naturally what comes with reminiscing, we do occasionally go off topic, which partially is why this is in two parts. How old were you when you first went to Los Angeles? went to Los Angeles, I was, would have been a teenager taken by the parents. And I'd last went there in 2006 for a, a 3D film expo at the Egyptian. That was it. Seven years between that trip and this trip. What were the differences in terms of your experience of the locations there? A lot of the cinemas had closed. You read in all the trade papers that theatrical exhibition is dying out and film screenings are dying out. And uh, it's not until I got there and looked for cinemas I'd been to in fact, I remember we went to Santa Monica Boulevard on one day, and the last time I was there was 1999, and I'd seen The Matrix. And I was trying to find that cinema, and it was just not there. We just passed lots of empty awnings. 
I did find that on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, it was quite... I didn't realize how bleak it felt at one end of Hollywood Boulevard, where you had the... Well, of course, very touristy and with the Walk of Fame and the Hollywood stars and, and everything else. But, for example, when we went to... Which restaurant was it? The, the uh, Musso and Frank's. Musso and Frank's. It's at the end of Hollywood Boulevard where it's very touristy. It, it's very hidden, the restaurant, for what it is, for, for something that is something of, a, of an old-school Hollywood legacy. It's not old school, it's old. It's been around since the 20s, I believe. And Well, it's old, it was, it's old, and it's old school old. When they built it, it was, of course, in, the, in the, the key district. There were cinemas and premieres and all sorts of things all around it. As time's gone on, it, that area has become very touristy, by which I mean, you know, tourist traps. The other area, with the Chinese theatre and the El Capitan, has become the big show-busy area. And it's not that far, maybe 10-minute walk between them. But in LA, a 10-minute walk doesn't exist. We, we found Everyone that out. Drives. Well, not we didn't. No, we don't. But... We, did, we did quite well for two British guys who don't drive or didn't drive in Los Angeles for two weeks. The good thing was every time you have a big meal, you just burn it off straight away with a big walk. The buses and the trains are very good. I prefer the trains over the buses, I have to say. I wasn't I, I like on the bus. Well, because nobody takes the bus. It's not like in London or in Britain where the buses go in strange directions and go around corners and go everywhere. In LA, it's like straight down this way and then you have to get off and get another one to go around a corner. And I, uh, I took a bus down to the airport one day and as I got it on the corner... Wait, wait hang, hang on a minute. Why, why, why were you going to the airport? I didn't realise my company was that bad. What, you were trying to leave halfway through the... There was a uh, film convention down in a hotel by the airport. I, I forgot about that. But so I, was, I went to that one day. I was mildly concerned for a second. And that's a whole other story, a whole yeah. other podcast, I think. But uh, as And I took the bus on one of the corners of Hollywood Boulevard. And as the further and further it went out, less and less white faces there were on the bus. Because it was just me and a lot of Mexicans and obviously people who weren't very well off. But you were saying earlier, as you walked down Hollywood Boulevard, it's only about 20 minutes between the Kodak Theatre and the Chinese Theatre and all the big glamorous places and Paul McCartney playing live, which we just stumbled across. And yeah, I wasn't 20 minutes down is, I won't say the slums because they're not that bad, but it is certainly a poorer community. It's, it's very divided, unlike in London where it's sort of all mixed together. The last time I went was more or less in the same areas that we explored this time around, except I was younger, I was with my family, and every time, just a corner of my eye, something that appealed to me, I was with my family, couldn't go to it. So, oh, that's interesting. No, we've got an agenda, right? Like, we have to go and do this. Okay, damn it. So that was an issue. But this time around, it was free reign. You and I, we were both out there. We could do what we want. We had a very detailed schedule, actually. Yes, but it, it wasn't... It's what I do over here in London. It's not necessarily what we're going to. It's everything that's on that night. So on the day, we can pick and choose. Yeah. And Which it's like this is on at UCB, this is on at Meltdown, this is on wherever mm. this film is on. We can. Although do. when you only have two weeks there, it is much harder to make those decisions mm. than if you're living in the city. And we we did have, find that out on a number of occasions. Sometimes you would go off and do something, and I would go off and do something, and then we'd both report back essentially on our on our evening. There were times, however, when we would be doing things together, many of which were associated at some point or other with talk shows. Why we're here in the first place. Three examples we'll be discussing about today, the first of which involves our trip to the Los Angeles Paley Center. How do you, what do you call it exactly? The Paley Center? The, the, pa the Paley Center. It's just I, the Paley Center. When I went uh, first time around, it was the Museum of Television and Radio. Which is more or less what it still is, but it's called the Paley Center. Yeah. yeah. And 
the idea is that uh, you get to go in and pick what you want to see from their vast archive of, well, it would have been tapes back when I went, but now it's all digitised, from the radio and film collections. And they generally have a season of themed events, or when we went there was an exhibition of Warner Brothers television props and costumes. And there were actually a number of talk show-related props that were out on display when we were there, I remember. A a six-foot-tall Lego Conan. Lego Conan, yeah. And there was Ellen's shirt or something. Ellen's shirt? I don't remember that. Yeah, I'm sure there was Ellen's shirt or Ellen's clothes or something. It was something to do with Ellen. There was a bunch of... Oh, there was some really great Chuck Jones original artwork, stuff from Duck Amuck and amazing stuff. Oh, don't get me wrong, there was, an, uh, there was a few HBO things. I was obsessed with the suit from Deadwood, the sheriff's suit from Deadwood, worn by Timothy Oliphant, and was obsessed with the detail and buttons of that. Of course, also you had the late, great James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano's robe. I think the most iconic thing there was uh, Wonder Woman's outfit. Well, I won't ask why it was the thing that stood out for you, but that's fine. That's your fetish. She's tiny, Linda Carter, tiny. Tiny Linda tiny. Carter. It was a very small costume. And there was loads of Friends stuff, like a circle of Friends merchandise. That always appeals to the broader audiences, though. I mean, yeah. Friends was huge. It, it, but it's... they were really key, memorable props. This Just stuff like the chicken that Joey sticks on his head. I don't remember that. That's definitely there. This might not be a discussion for today, but no, I... This, I, is, this but... is very off-topic. Well, well, it's it, it's but not it, just in about... the same building, I suppose. It's a talk show about talk shows, but also a talk show. Chat but... show. A talk show. What's the name of the it was celebrating i think 50 years of warner brothers television mm. so it was just across the board so there was stuff from babylon 5 and er babylon and... 5 was it yeah definitely yeah oh, fringe as well that was another true blood but also stuff like the mentalist and things that aren't that well known over here mm. so with that in mind behind this big room of props and wonder was the viewing room the viewing room which you're allowed what was it about 90 minutes yeah if any of our listeners have been to the bfi mediatek in London. It's, kind of, it's kind of like that times the thousand. Just to elaborate, the BFI Media Tech, BFI British Film Institute, Institute. is on South Bank, located at the National Film Theatre. Yes, but the, the Media Techs are across the country. There's mm. one in Bradford, there's one in Glasgow, I think. It's, it's a TV archive where you go in, book your time, and see something of your choice. And in this case, there's too much to pick from, really. Yeah, the, the BFI one has a couple of hundred in LA and New York, because they've got a Paley Centre too. They literally thousands, and they're long shows, and they're stuff you've never heard of. Yeah, it's stuff we've never heard of because we're British. And one of the things that we'd never heard of, but I, I, I'd like to think that we are both quite excited at the prospect of seeing it, which is why we chose it for our sort of ninety-minute viewing or so. It's only about an hour, I think, that the actual thing that we watched was David Letterman's nineteen seventy-nine HBO special, which apparently is only it was produced in nineteen seventy-nine, but aired in nineteen eighty-one. Looking for fun, which what would you say it was? A, it was essentially a travel log, a, a, yeah, par- a parody of a spoof travel log of David Letterman in his yeah. television persona, which became honed within the forthcoming years to it, towards late night. Was traveling around Los Angeles, interviewing locals. It was in inverted commas. The idea of it seems to be a tourist guide to Los Angeles. Where can you find fun in Los Angeles? And Letterman is not a Los Angeles native. So they obviously said to him, you know, come and do a show here. What, what can I do it about? Uh, I don't know. I'm going there looking for interesting stuff. That'll, that's what it is. That's the idea. And it's great for, for what it is. I mean, I, I mean, there, there are certain aspects which are so subtle that you can't 
figure out in some respects if these people are real or it's been set up. Some of them, some of them clearly have been set up, but well, not all. Well, of them. One of them's his his friend, the comedian George Miller. Mm. He goes around to his house and uh, looks around this mess. And because he's the comedian George Miller, and he would have been seen on stand-up shows, people might have thought it was a a prank. So they've put on a caption that says, "This is really his George Miller's house." So there is the 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 line between reality and fantasy here is. And that's a double layer of humour as well, because it's daring you to second-guess them and go, oh, isn't that George Miller? And then it says, yeah, no, no, it's George Miller, and this is his house. Hmm. I guess the only way of seeing it at present is if you go to the Paley Centre in Los Angeles, or indeed New York. But, yeah, if you haven't seen it, look for Looking for Fun. It's very good indeed. It's it, What else features in it? There's a, I don't want to give too much away, I suppose. He gets an old Jewish couple who are tourists to... to... Well, whether it happens or not is arguable, but he gets them on screen to waste a day of their trip to L.A. by sitting him in a restaurant and looking for celebrities. And he goes back throughout the day. Anyone famous coming? No, nobody. Nobody saw anybody. And they're getting increasingly agitated yeah. throughout the day. And they, he just keeps paying for coffee. And eventually, or maybe, does, does he even make them pay? I, I think he does, yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent piece. And the, th- the reason I, I, I highlight this aspect of our trip is in part because in light of the announcement that Stephen Colbert is taking over from David Letterman in 2015, it's, I personally believe that there is definitely a transitional comparison there. If you look at... Now, we've spoken about this off-air, as it were. In certain circles, there is a, a backlash to Stephen Colbert or a lack of confidence or a lack of faith in Stephen Colbert taking over from David Letterman for Late Show. Now... My argument for that, and the thing is, I'm I'm a big fan of Stephen Colbert, I'm a big fan of David Letterman, and it's it's fascinating to me that people, there are people who have a distinct lack of faith in Stephen Colbert's abilities as the host of Late Show, because almost 10 years worth of his career has been in character for the Colbert Report for Comedy Central. Now, if one looks at David Letterman during his late night period, and using that HBO special as a as a template, as a sort of starter point, that was a very subtle character. I mean, you had Christmas with the Lettermans from 1984, uh, which is a brilliant pastiche of Christmas specials. It stands up today. It's brilliantly executed, and it's it, but it's character. It's char- it's character work. Now, obviously, uh, Colbert is considerably less subtle a character because it's regarding a political agenda. It's it's a parody of the likes of Bill O'Reilly and so forth, but. Either way, they're both similar backgrounds that lead into a transitional period of what was defined by Letterman as late show. And certain characteristics of late night were passed on to the late show, and they soon enough faded out. Whereas, of course, Colbert Report is not going to necessarily, especially since he's going to be out of character, and we do not know what he's going to bring to the table out of character. I think it's far too early to assume, simply on the basis that we haven't seen him outside of character. It's a gamble. I'm not denying it's not a gamble. But I think it's too early to be so pessimistic about the potential that he may bring outside of a character. Because obviously to build that character, to live that character for almost 10 years, he's a talented man. And he's brought a lot of that variations of that to the table. Yes, dear listener, I am that pessimist. Because the big difference, and it is a very important one, is that the Letterman stand-up character, which is what he does in Looking for Fun and what he did in his game show hosts and appearances, and he would, he would have been quite well known. He would have been seen on TV shows. And, you know, he famously auditioned for Kentucky Fried Movie and things like that. That character is, to all intents and purposes, Letterman. If you see what I mean. It's a stand-up persona that's been put into a chat show seat. So he can react 
to people, but he can also do the sketches and the stupid Petrix and whatever. Colbert's persona is very different, as I understand it, from Colbert the man. It's not like Seinfeld, for example. You know, he goes up on stage as Jerry Seinfeld, and he plays in a sitcom as Jerry Seinfeld. It's not the real man, but it's the real man slightly askew, which is what most stand-up is, apart from character-based stuff and whatever. Colbert is a character, which is very different. But at the same time, I would say that to even live that character... I'm not saying he's untalented. Uh, it's a very funny character. But people, not everyone, but certain people who play a character can't do other things. But we know that he can sing. We know that he can dance. We know that he can improvise. We know that he's... There's a famous story about Charlie Chaplin asked to impersonate uh, Caruso at a party. And he did this beautiful operatic thing. People said to him, oh, we th Charlie, we didn't know you could sing. It's like, no, I can't sing, but I can imitate Caruso. Colbert, same sort of thing. He can sing and do wacky dancing and do strange stuff when he's the Colbert character. The character might as well not be called Stephen Colbert. You see what I mean? In Strangers with Candy, he does quite, quite some elaborate dancing and he's not playing... The character of Stephen Colbert is playing a different character. He's playing a different character. Playing a different character. So yeah, not, yeah, he's a good performer. Hmm. But again, some people... He's a good are, performer. That's, that's, the, that's yeah, the key element here. But there are people who are very, very funny performers who hmm. can't do other things. I was watching um, a Kenneth Williams chat show recently, actually, on YouTube, when he replaced... I believe he replaced Wogan for a couple of weeks. Oh, yes. Everyone replaced Wogan for a couple of weeks. I'm sure we'll talk about Wogan. On another one, show. One day we must talk about when Ben Elton covered for Wogan. And at one point interviews Jeffrey Archer, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. That's for another day. Cries of Judas from the alternative crowd. Mm. We'll, we'll talk about that another day. I but he, I think he says farties and then gets all shy and is like, oh, can I, get, can I say farties on the BBC? Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm. You know, if, that's what you're, if that's the most controversial thing you're going to do and you're going to get upset about it. Was, it. was that Jeffrey Archer or Ben Elton? Uh, ben Elton. Oh. But, well, that's, that's for another day. That's another day. Now, uh, Kenneth Williams interviewing Michael Palin in this clip, and he's sort of not reacting, and he's talking over him, and he's sort of waiting to jump in with his anecdote. And Michael Palin's telling a book of limericks, and Kenneth Williams is telling him his own limericks and other poems that aren't limericks. And it's kind of... It's fun, but it's not a conversation. <laughs> it's just batting a joke back and forth. It's not even that. It's like, here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke. And Palin's obviously a bit ill at ease. That's just one example. Kenneth Williams, great raconteur, very funny actor. Not a bad writer either, but not a chat show host. You made a very good comparison earlier talking about if a singer makes a movie and everyone goes, oh, he's going to be awful, guy can't act. Some can and some can't. Mm. And I don't think it's fair to go in and go, Stephen Colbert's going to be awful because he, he's, you know, we've not seen him. We don't know what he's like off air. Exactly. But I don't think it's fair also to go in and go, oh, I think he's going to be brilliant because he's great in character. No, I agree. I completely agree. I like what he's done, and I like his show, and I like, I think he's an interesting, entertaining, intelligent person. Absolutely. I, I would say I'm optimistic with a but. I'm a big fan of character-based chat shows. There aren't that many of them, but the few there are, uh, Dame Edna, for example. Uh, I like to see Stephen Colbert as Dame Edna. But yeah. But my, my, my point is, Dame Edna, chat show, great. She can be outrageous, she can be funny. She can talk to Charlton Heston or whoever and be ridiculous. Whereas Barry Humphreys, without the wig, he's, he, again, he's a smart, funny writer. He writes all the Dame Edna stuff, of course. But he would not be a good chat show host. The other key example to mention would be Paul O'Grady. 
for years, decades, he was Lily Savage. And she was hilarious doing pantos and hosting a chat. She, not a chat show, but she hosted Blankety Blank and things. And she could do the same Daily Meta stuff of being outrageous. But when Paul O'Grady got the chat show, he was just as funny. <laughs> but he was himself, so he was funny and authentic and genuine fans of who he was interviewing in most cases. That's the big success story. Someone who's all arguably better out of character than in. This will lead us on to our next segment of our Los Angeles adventure in relation to talk shows, in that I would say that if one was to compare Late Show with The Tonight Show, in terms of legacy, Tonight Show, 60 years old this year, and has had a number of hosts. Carson's the one that cemented the style. Yeah, absolutely. But then I would also say that if you look at the difference, I mean, Late Show, before Late Show, you had a couple of attempts that didn't stick. You had Pat Sajak and you had Merv Griffin, which I'll be delving into both in future episodes to investigate. But it was in light of the, as it's famously known now, the Late Night Wars, well, Late late Night Wars 1, arguably, if we uh, consider uh, Conan and Leno tobacco further down the line. But the Late Night Wars regarding Carson's departure and the alleged battle between uh, Leno and Letterman, in light of Leno getting the role, Letterman perhaps realised that it was a safest bet to have his own show, start from scratch, work from his own legacy, and build something out of out of this slot that's been given to him. You know, Letterman went into Late Show, and Late Show was his. It was his show. He's the first person of that show. He's the first host of that show. Whereas Carson to Leno, Leno to Conan, Conan to Leno again, Leno to Fallon, there's a whole expectancy of what a host can bring and make the show theirs, make the Tonight Show theirs. Whereas with Late Show, this is just the second guy. So I think it's far too early. Whoever would have been given the job, whoever would have been given the role, I think there would have been some skepticism. I don't think anyone at any juncture would have gone, yep, that's the guy to take over Letterman. I think there's a lot of assumption, of course, that it was going to be Craig Ferguson because there was the rumour that he had the heir apparent... Uh, Prince of Wales clause in his contract and so forth. But people are also aware that some may consider that slot by comparison to be limited to that of the Late Late Show. But either way, putting your pessimism, my optimism aside, let's collaborate now as we consider our experience with The Tonight Show with Jay Leno at the NBC studios in Los Angeles in that two-week period, late September, early October in 2013, now, of course, this was the second run of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, following the situation with Conan. And before we go into that, just a, just a quick indication, we'd have loved to see Conan live. What was, what, why didn't we go and see Conan live? Why didn't we go and see the TBS show? We went on the Warner Brothers studio tour that morning, and we planned to do the half-hour walk down to NBC and see Jay Leno. But at the end of the Warner Brothers talk, they went, oh, do you want to go and see Conan now? And we sort of had the choice. Do we see Conan with Jane Lynch, I believe, as the main guest? Mm. Or do we go to the Leno we'd already planned to do with Adam Scott as the main guest? What was... I, so what What made our decision? I think for, for me personally, I think it was... And I think this is the... You this, wanted to stick to the plan, I think. I remember you saying that. Let's I, just stick to the plan. Yeah, let's, let's just... see Conan later. And then it never happened. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, that's the thing. I, I, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you think, ah, well, we can, we can do it all. Which we did quite a lot for two guys with no cars. That's by the by. But in two weeks, we did pretty well. But nevertheless, I think my main reason was, well, first of all, because it was the words, The Tonight Show, right. that interested me. 
And I won't lie, it was certainly an interesting experience. And I I enjoyed it. I thought the warm-up guy was good. <laughs> yeah, you, you've been searching around for reviews, and all the reviews are like, well, the warm-up guy was really good. Don Reed. Don Reed. Don Reed. He's very who... talented, but... From, he, he does the same sort of stick that warm-up guys do over here. From a different world? I've certainly Cosby seen fans. that dance routine he, he did, done by a British warm-up. Well, there you go. Ian Stone, or not Ian Stone. Yeah, Ian Stone. And warm-ups, like warm-ups will be another aspect that we'll be covering in, in future episodes as well. We're going to cover everything, eventually. I don't, this, this is going to run and run. And you will be back on this show, by the way, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Sounds like a threat. Yeah. It is. It's a threat. So... Parky never did that. What threat? Well, I think you will be back on this show. He should have threatened more. I think he was pretty threatening as it was. Uh, once again, another person will be talking about Parkinson, Michael Parkinson, the threatening Michael Parkinson. I think we're waiting for him to die, aren't we? No, couple of weeks anyway. Tops. What from now? I just check your watch. You haven't got much time. Well, I've still got to read his book, wow. Parky. I think it's called Parky by Parky. Parky. By Parky. No, I want to say... by Parky. Intro by Parky. Michael Parkinson by Parky. Well, have you seen the Wogan books? Which is just like Wogan on Wogan by Wogan. Isn't it? Is it me? Is it me? Who did that one? Is it me? I don't know. Who did the author? Catherine Hepburn did me. I'm sure Wogan did one called Is It Me. He did a few. I've or got... Where Am I? Or Am I? <laughs> he did the. the, the <laughs> what? Where have I woken up? Hogs book and Banjacks. There's a lot of Wogan tie-in garbage out there, which I'm sure he didn't write a word of. Well, he didn't write Stop It and Tidy Up. No, he didn't. But he did write... Oh, no, Parky did The Woofits, which is a doggy cartoon. And, of course, Desert Island Discs as well. Had a stint on there. Yeah, he's the one everyone forgets. I think he was the pointless answer on on pointless uh, question about who hosted Desert Island Discs. Moving swiftly back into this conversation of Los Angeles, the... Reason we stuck with the Tonight Show for the most part, for me personally, I think, was the legacy of the Tonight Show. It's like we went to a recording of the Tonight Show. Now I remember seeing the Conan Leno situation laid out on British television and various clips on YouTube and so forth, and seeing that kind of come out as as it went out there. And as far as I was concerned, up to that point, I'd seen bits and bobs of Leno. I'd seen more. I'd seen more Leno. I'd seen more people doing impressions of Leno than I'd seen Leno. You'd seen more cameos for him in, in the movies. I think he's the person who's in the most movies as himself. Stuff like Independence Day and Dave. Really? And... I got really irritated by something in my head. It was um, uh, it was a tumour. No, it was Jerry Springer in Austin Powers. He introduces Scott S- Scott Evil. Oh, yeah. And he goes, Scotty Ball! And I, it always, and I always thought he was being jovial and going, Scotty Boy. But then I realised somewhere down the line, actually, he was saying Scott Evil, and it always just really. But go seriously, go and watch the first Austin Powers film. Not now, obviously, but but di- and he goes. I, I guess it's one of those things where probably they didn't want to ask him to do it again. But he just. He, but he kind of goes off the mic, like he, I've been doing consistently throughout this recording. He probably wasn't around for the ADR sessions. Maybe they're trying to get the authentic, uh, shoddy TV atmosphere of his shows. Mm. He always wanted to do stand up and acting, and he just wasn't good at it. Didn't he have a stint, interviewing stints in on British television, where yeah, it was actually the Jerry Springer show? He had his own chat show, yeah. How long, was that a one-off? How long did that last? It didn't last long. I can't remember. I think it was a nightly thing, was it? 
This was when Channel, I think it was Channel 4, and Channel 4 were just looking for a chat show host. And he did one, and Gabby Rosling, I think Chris, Chris Evans had just quit PFI, mm. and they were looking for someone. Yeah. And eventually, I guess the person that sprung out of that was Graham Norton. We've got we've got a lot to look into look in future episodes. It's but very Channel, exciting. Well, you know how Graham Norton <laughs> I mean, popped up? Yeah. Because Channel 5 had the Jack Doherty show. Mm. In Jack 97. Doherty took a couple of weeks off and Graham Norton filled in. I think won an award for it and then got the Channel 4 show. Did they ever, did they ever bring Kitty Navidad yes. from the Russ Mayer films? Because Channel 5 on terrestrial television before Sky became the number one thing, but, you know, it was still revolving over the 90s, it's fair to say, but initially it was just four channels. If you're an American listener, we had four channels up, to, up until 1997. We if had three channels up until 1981. True. And, and BBC Two has just celebrated its 50th Last week, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. It was only really in the last 20 years or so that cable has fully evolved into being the number one thing. Digital, Sky Digital, Virgin, that we now have. For the lowly terrestrial viewer, we had four channels up until 1997 when Channel 5 was introduced, which was opened, if I'm not mistaken, by the Spice Girls. Mm -hmm. And that was their year, wasn't it, more or less? It was one of their years. One of, one of the, one of their years. I think they were on Mad Magazine cover that year as well. And Jack Doherty, who may be known to some, he was very funny comedian, part of the Absolutely Troop. The Absolutely Troop, terrific uh, early nineties. Well, started eighty nine, didn't he? But early nineties Channel Four sketch show. And how long did that go on for the Jack Doherty show? A couple of years, because I, I used to go past Whitehall on the bus, and he was always up there on the, on the Whitehall Theatre. Come and see Jack Doherty show free tickets, and I never did. I've seen him at Soho Theatre. In, I've seen in him the pub. I spoke to him drunkenly after a recording. What, you or him? I, both of us, but I, oh. I was quite. I corrected him on the budget of, of production he financed. I oh, must have loved that. With Russ Mayer, though. What about Russ Mayer? Are we talking about Jonathan Ross's incredibly strange film show? No, Is that the link? That's a whole lot. No, no. Is that the link? Because that goes into Jonathan Ross's chat show. No, no, it's Channel 5. Oh. Channel 5. That's, that's all right. Channel 5 consisted, for the most part, early on. It's not Russ Russell. Meyer. It's mostly like Shannon Tweed 80s TV movies. No, they, they, look, I, I've got VHS tapes upstairs that magnanimous off-airs that magnanimously prove that there were a ton of Russ Meyer films on early Channel 5. Well, I won't argue with you, because I don't know for sure. But, uh... What we do know for sure is that in late September, early October, we went to see The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Yes. And... It was an interesting experience. Hands down, it was an... Hands down? Yeah, put your hands down. No, hands down, it was an interesting experience. It was it was fascinating to go to. It was fascinating to be a part of. Well, it's always interesting to go to a TV recording or a radio recording, I find. I've been to literally hundreds in my years. If you're interested in television right. and the workings of it, well, presumably you are because you're listening to this podcast about chat shows, talk shows. Or maybe not now. <laughs> It's interesting to go to a recording and see how it differs from what goes out. Like you've probably talked about this on the sit on the sitcom club. In fact, I know you have the differences between actors who perform to the audience there and actors who perform to the audience at home. And a lot of theatrical actors will perform it loud and broad and to the audience. And then when you watch them on TV, you'll be like, "Why are they? Why are they so big?" Whereas there are other actors who are underplay it. I don't know Peter Regan or someone like that who make no impression when you see them live. That's not fair to Peter Regan, but you know what I mean. On TV, they're perfect. And the same is true of a chat show. 
or a talk show, if you like. Who are they performing to? Is it an intimate conversation between the host and the, and the guest? Is the guest joking out to the audience? Or is he talking to the people at home? And there's no hard and fast rule. People just depends on their training, I suppose. The comedian's general rule is that the comedians will play to the audience. The TV, people who were born out of TV will play to the TV audience. And people like Adam Scott, who we saw interviewed by Jay Leno, will talk exclusively to Jay Leno. But he did say he was nervous. And I've, I've, he was I've, terrified. Yeah. Well, so, so was I. I was terrified for him. Because mm. Jay Leno is... I don't want to berate Jay Leno. It's too easy to do. He's not quite the generation after Letterman, but he's younger than Letterman. So he's he should be the hip, younger person. But he's not. Letterman's always been the hip guy. Even now at age... Uh, 66, I believe. 60-something, yeah, late 60s. And while Leno was doing stand-up shows in the sort of early 80s, around the time of Seinfeld and, and Gary Shandling and all the people that Mike Nesbitt picked to do little sketches for Mike Nesbitt's television part... While they were sort of breaking into television, Letterman was already established. Not by long, by three, four years, I think, at this point. But still, it gave him a status. He was the king of late night by this point. And Leno was seen as the new kid when he finally got his show. Of course, then Conan became the new kid when he got his show. And Conan still is the new kid. So Leno's in a very weird position at the moment where he's neither the old guard, Letterman, or the, the new kid, who is Conan, who is, again, he's nearly 50, presumably. So Leno is in a sort of unloved position in the middle, and I think this has affected him. We're talking about, of course, when we went to see him. We're not talking about necessarily now. Now's a whole different world. He's, oh, no, he's no, gone, he's now retired. 20, even 20 years ago, it was completely different. And I'm sure in even two years in the future, it's all going to change when Letterman's gone. Now, as a side note, have you seen any of Conan's first ever show from 1993 when he began to host I Late have, Night? I have not. I've seen him before that, but only as an interviewee, back when he was writing on, on the SNL writing staff. And he appeared on a chat show to talk about that as part of a panel. I believe there's a clip of the first five, ten minutes on YouTube that feature the kind of opening part where you have Conan getting up, getting ready, getting to the... I think, I think he gets as far as the dressing room, all along the way, all down the street, everywhere, everyone's going, don't screw it up, don't blow it. And all this pressure, and he's all very smiley and cheery, and do, 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 uh, walking down the street and everything in, I think, well, New York. And then in the, he's still with a big grin on his face, he's, he's just about to pull down a noose. He's just about to hang himself in the dressing room. And they said, oh, you got two minutes. And he's just like, ah. And he goes, and it's great. And the first monologue. That's him putting his own imprint on it. That's like, this is what this show's going to be. It's going to be my wacky, crazy show. Yeah, absolutely. This, is, this isn't Jack Parr. Yeah. I ain't bringing out the newspapers. I recently saw a clip of an early Conan on Late Night where it's himself and Jeff Garlin. And Jeff Garlin comes out. And Jeff Garlin and Conan are long-standing friends. And it's interesting because Jeff Garlin is out promoting this film, which I still haven't heard of, but it wasn't necessarily a big film. But I think it was just a case of bringing on an old friend and having a chat. And it was just a perfect excuse. It's great. And they do this little bit and it kind of doesn't, there's not a huge response from the audience, but what was great is that, completely unintentional, is that I think Andy Richter's the one who picks up on it, that his fly has been undone for the entire interview. And so it just it just deviates to that by the end of the interview. But this is, bearing in mind, on the same episode, on the same show, you've got David Frost being interviewed, so David Frost. Jeff Garland now, of course, who um, does a show at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles, where we went to a couple of times called by the way in conversation with jeff garland so there you go see another talk, another talk show to talk show to talk show it's just the, the circle of life of talk shows and with that in mind 
but no influence between those three people. Oh, yeah, no influence at all. No. <laughs> I've seen all those people live, and <laughs> they're all completely different styles. Although I do, for those who are listening, I do recommend tracking down, well, track down all of them, but track down the episode of, by the way, in conversation with Jeff Garland, where he interviews Conan, because there's some great reminiscing and anecdotes in that particular show. Mm-hmm. However, what I'd also say was that our experience at tonight's show, with Jay Leno, the NBC studios in Los Angeles, was an interesting experience. And we'll finally get to that part of the conversation and more next week on the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. If you have any questions, would like to come on the show as a guest, or just recommend a show or aspect for us to cover, you can now follow us on Twitter at Talk Show Podcast, or alternatively send us a message via admin at podnose.com. I'm George Grimwood, and I'll see you next week here on the Talk Show Talk Show Podcast. Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnose Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood. Mm-hmm.